Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tiny DevOps. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today I have with me my special guest, uh, Eric Dietrich, who is a former programmer, architect, and IT management consultant. Uh, and he's the founder and CEO of HitSubscribe. Uh, welcome, Eric. What, what can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, thanks for having me. Um, let's see. So I guess if I had to summarize my career and kind of who I am these days, it feels like a kind of weird, uh, long winding journey through opportunistically doing different stuff uh, so as not to get bored, I guess is how I'd put it. Um, so I had a pretty traditional career for a long time where I worked my way up the software engineering org chart, you know, getting titles like senior or whatever, and then eventually wound up in management and my last salaried role was as a CIO. And then I sort of, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, figured out that I maybe couldn't work for other people or something. So I became an independent management consultant, did that for a number of years. And then um, the way I like to think of it, that, that strikes me as kind of funny. So after all that, of course, I started a marketing business. Um, but actually what happened is I used to write a lot of blog posts in my spare time uh, for my site, Dead Tech, and people would more and more approach me and say, hey, would you, if we paid you, would you write for our corporate dev tools blog? And I would say, sure. After enough of this, I, it, I figured out that, hey, this is an actual kind of business opportunity. So I partnered with my wife on what was originally going to be kind of a, a side hustle, but there was so much demand that we just wound up doing it full time. So that is, I think the rest of my career arc, apart from the marketing company, kind of makes fairly straightforward sense. So <laughs> I always feel the need to explain this particular uh, right turn a little bit more. But yeah, that's me in a nutshell. So mostly career-wise application development and in and around software. And the marketing business hit subscribe is still in and around software. It's dev tools companies that we're working with, but it's just kind of a different core value proposition. So one question I've had for years, actually, since first coming across your website, which, as you just mentioned, is deadtech.com. Why the spelling, D-A-E-D, -E tech? Oh, it was um, at, around that time I was doing various projects and I had like a server and satellite computers in my house. And I got in the habit of naming everything I was doing after Greek mythology figures. If memory serves, this is now like 11, 12 years ago or something, but at the time I had built this home automation server that I had called Daedalus, and I saw wanting my moonlighting and side hustle to eventually be home automation focused, so I took that name and called the business Dead Tech, and then, of course, even a year in, I wasn't doing anything like that. It was just <laughs> moonlighting application <laughs> development or whatever, but, you know, the best laid plans. Nice. A good story. All right. So the the reason I brought you on today is to talk about actually a book that you wrote, I, I guess, originally a series of blog posts that you turned into a book, uh, polished up a little bit. And I read the book. Um, it's called The Expert Beginner. I, re I read this book probably shortly after it came out. I remember sitting on the southern coast of Spain and the sun reading this book on my Kindle. And it was just kind of blowing my mind a little bit uh, and, and some of your other material, too. Um, and so when I started this podcast, like, you know, I'd, I'd love to have you on to talk about uh, this this sort of concept of expert beginnerism. Uh, maybe you can uh, just briefly tell us what the concept is, what the book is about if you were to go read it, but just briefly, you know, in a couple paragraphs, what is this so-called expert beginnerism? So the easiest way for me to describe that is, um, well, I guess with, without like walking through a narrative, the idea is that you can, I'd kind of, 
dived into the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition, which for anybody who's not familiar has these five stages, um, which is novice and then advanced beginner. And then I think it's proficient and then, or a competent proficient and expert. And the last one of the phases in that sequence at which you don't really understand the big picture is called the advanced beginner. And so I riffed on that concept to describe people generally in the software world, but it could really be, and, and like uh, this went pretty viral and commenters weighed in saying this applies to a lot of industries. But for me, it was specifically in software to say that there are people, especially who maybe are the incumbent or only senior software engineer in a shop who aren't actually particularly good at their craft, but there's nobody around, including themselves, that understands that. So they calcify into this role where even though they don't really understand what they're doing very well, they're still the incumbent expert, if you will. And um, what I was talking about is how common this actually is, given the proliferation and explosion of software, where, you know, it's something like, I think Bob Martin had said that, like, uh, because the number of software engineers doubles like every five years. So at any given time, half of the workforce is pretty inexperienced. And so that was true then, probably true now. And so you have all these shops where somebody gets a senior title and um, makes decisions in spite of not really knowing what they're doing. So that's the, the general concept that uh, I explored in this content. So I remember reading it and, uh, of course, names and faces came to my mind. Uh, oh, I know somebody who's like that. <laughs> Uh, did you have that experience when you were writing this? Uh, don't don't tell us names, but did you have people in mind that like I'm writing about this person? Yeah. So at the time, I guess when I first started writing, I think the first blog post I wrote was like ten years ago. Um, no, it would have been a little less than that, but yes, very much so. So I kind of hedged at the time, and I was like, "Well, this is a composite." But there were two specific people in particular that I could picture, and my interactions with them had been: I was at a shop, and when I came in. I don't even remember the title I came in anymore. So they were sort of above me. I was this, you know, I had been in the industry seven, eight years at this time. So I wasn't a newbie programmer. Um, so I kind of slotted in where they were making decisions. And at first I was subject to them, but eventually I started building up a reputation for myself and um, bringing in practices like unit testing, doing lunch and learns, um, uh, what all was I doing? Putting static analysis into the build. Things that were kind of sophisticated back in, you know, 2012, 2010, whenever this was. Um, and I gained a reputation. It was kind of this long uphill battle to like slowly win over the favor um, compared to these folks who were there that really didn't believe in these things. And it was kind of a whole, I've been doing this for 20 years without writing a single test. You can't tell me what the, like that type of thing. Um, and eventually I kind of won things over and, um, achieved the things I wanted to, but it was such an utter slog that I eventually left. It was like tiring that every little good thing you did had to be such a pitched battle. But for me, it was easier because I, you know, earned a claim in the group and did all these things. But other people who um, believed in the stuff would just get, you know, pooped on by these guys. Um, and it was very much about them and, and there was some catharsis, I guess, in how frustrating it had been for me, but I think it was a lot more frustrating or uh, cathartic for people who had been there that, um, uh, didn't have the same cachet that I wound up building to fight back. And in point of fact, we actually, there was a guy there who had less experience than me and we ran an experiment where 
he would just, these two people in particular and some of the senior folks there in general would just savage him at code review time and like demand that he changed everything. We took a body of changes that he was going to do and put my name on it and just went and saw what happened at code review and it was way different. So like this was hard on these folks. And so I kind of channeled their experience and to some extent my frustration in the beginning and wrote about this. And then the response from people everywhere, you know, like this, the original post still goes viral on hacker news. I don't know, like once a year. Um, and just the, the amount that this resonates with people, I was not prepared for that. But like 10 years later, I see like, this is super common and very frustrating and demoralizing for people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a concrete example, perhaps from the past, or it could be made up of, of an expert beginner in action, you know, something that they do, uh, this cargo culting mindset, uh, that where, where it's wrong. I'm trying to think back to kind of the original situation that I was in. So examples of the kind of things they would do. Um, there was a lot of conflation of personal preferences with the way you ought to do things. So I remember these people that I'm thinking of in particular imposed all kinds of cosmetic code coding standards on junior level people that weren't exactly, so this was a Microsoft shop at the time. It wasn't like Microsoft's standards where you might be able to point to that and say like, yeah, you know, do an M then underscore or whatever before class fields. It was, it was random stuff. Like there was one guy that just insisted that everybody alphabetize the using statements in every file. So like w one thing is I've developed this preference and now everybody will do it my way because I mean, that could be a bit of a power trip, but it's also something I've seen in expert beginners. Like everything I've done because I've done it is the right way to do it. Um, and then that just kind of, so there, there was like, I mean, cosmetic or just kind of superfluous power dynamic things. But then this general assumption that whatever decisions I've made in the past are the right ones. That was pretty common. Um, and then I think, you know, I don't know if there are less toxic versions of this persona, but a lot of it was, it wasn't just um, insisting that this is the right way. It was being downright nasty at times to people who not even questioned it, but just didn't do it their way or didn't think to. This sort of like disdain for anybody that hadn't gotten on board with everything they wanted done. The the theme I hear is uh, through all this is essentially a lack of humility, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty evident in there. And it's, I, I, if I were to dive into it psychologically, I almost wonder if there's this kind of back of the mind. And I think I did write about this in kind of the latter chapters before fleshing it out into the book, but there's different levels of cognitive dissonance, I think, in this type of persona. So I think a lot of this tends to come from perhaps this feeling that they really aren't all that in control or they're really not right. And there's probably nobody who's more prone to being hyper defensive than somebody who feels like they might be wrong and that they've barely got a grip on their situation. Have you ever been an expert beginner? I don't think so. I mean, it's not that I think I'm, um, I'm immune to either hubris or overestimating my own competence. I mean, I think that like the latter in particular is a sort of cognitive bias, but if anything, number one, I veer more towards imposter syndrome where I'm, I'm convinced if I write something, somebody's going to find something wrong with it and I'll get obsessive about justifying it with outside sources. And so I think that proclivity kind of 
prevents me from sliding into that trap naturally. Not that I wouldn't be capable of hubris or being wrong or anything like that, but I don't think I'm ever convinced that just because I've had success doing something or just because I've done it, it's the best way to do it. Um, so whatever various sundry character flaws I have, I don't think that's one. Okay. Well, uh, I think it's, I mean, I, I imagine the reason that this post resonates so strongly and, and I say this out of personal experience because it's kind of the way it resonated with me is that I can, I can finally point to something that's been bothering me and I, and I almost feel a little camaraderie that somebody else knows how I feel. Uh, and, and that feels good and it's fun. Um, but it, it, it might also be dangerous. I mean, if we all just sit around all day pointing fingers at that guy over there who's doing it wrong, uh, mm -hmm. we're probably not improving things. So I'm interested in exploring the topic today, if, if you don't mind, and it may be a little beyond what you thought about, but, but that could be good. How can we identify if we ourselves are, are expert beginners and, and try to avoid falling into that trap? So the thing that strikes me is kind of maybe the first like sanity checkpoint that you would have is how am I responding to criticism and to go back a little to whether I've been an expert beginner or not. Like if, if I actually unpack and sort of, um, I guess, self-honest fashion about how I respond to criticism, the answer is often not well, but not well in a different way. So like I can easily get defensive and dismissive, like in the moment, but what happens to me is then I start to second guess myself. I go back and I want to really make my case or see that I'm wrong. So it's, um, I think I would do a check-in about how you respond to criticism. But the thing I would say is, is there that initial defensiveness and then like dismissiveness? So are you responding to people who um, point out, hey, maybe this isn't the best way to do things or I have questions about this or whatever? Is your response defensiveness but also dismissiveness where you don't even – consider what they're saying because they're so far beneath you. So, you know, one way that you could be in a mindset like this, I think like, imagine, I don't know, like I, I was looking at a bunch of stuff on stack overflow. So you have this point system. Um, and if you had this idea of like, well, I have 80,000 rep on stack overflow. So there's no way that somebody with like only 50 reputation points could be right. And me wrong or something. I think that, idea that there's some kind of status, whether it's in the org chart or some, you know, objective metric like points or whatever that you can get to a status where you can't be wrong. That is the core defining thing. The, the idea that I can't be wrong about this. I've, you know, tying that in with status. So I think that's the first sanity checkpoint. I mean, there are others like if you're self-aware enough in an organization where you're kind of the, you know, the architect or the person who's in charge of tech decision or um, technical decisions. And there's a lot of turnover in your department that can also be a sign, um, bad morale. But, um, I think the biggest thing is like, do you react to second guessing or questions by just dismissing the person out of hand? That's really good. Um, I'm definitely guilty of that, uh, at times. Uh, I, I try to catch myself. Stack overflow is a great place to accidentally fall into that trap. Uh, I don't have 80,000 reputation, but I, I do sometimes find myself on a subject matter where I feel like I should be an expert uh, thinking, oh, this this newbie doesn't know what they're doing. So it's a good, uh, good advice there. Well, there's a corollary too, which is uh, like if I look at when I talked about having various sundry flaws, I'm not just saying that to like seem humble or something. 
The flip side of that is if you let anybody, however inexperienced with however silly a question, send you into this like spiral of self-justification, that might not always be the most productive use of your time. Because frankly, if you've been somewhere a long time and you have good subject matter expertise, the more common case is that a newbie questioning you isn't going to be right. So there, I think, is a balance to be struck. I don't know exactly how to strike it. And I think I tend to err on the side of getting unproductive to prove my points. Um, mm -hmm. But I do offer it as a check-in if, if your response to everything tends to be, this isn't worth considering, I can't be wrong about this. That's something to, I guess, evaluate if that's how you're always responding to uh, contrary suggestions. So supposing that uh, you've identified that you might be an expert beginner, what advice would you have to, to climb out of that hole? How, how do you, I mean, other than just st stopping to react uh, defensively and dismissively, how do we, how do we elevate ourselves from expert beginner to the next level in the Dreyfus model? So according to the Dreyfus model, which I don't have um, like a super in-depth grasp off of the top of my head, but like they say, if memory serves, that advanced beginner is the last stage where you um you lack broad context so expert beginners typically or i'm sorry advanced beginners typically um are basically doing almost a form of cargo cult so the way that dreyfus describes this is when you know nothing about something you don't really in the very beginning overestimate your skills you understand that you know nothing then you purely imitate people who know what they're doing and then suddenly through that imitation, you have this rapid like ascension in your skill where you're just doing what somebody else has done. And then, hey, look, I, f I cobbled together these three tutorials to get started in this tech stack. And look, I just, you know, a web app and hey, and that's kind of intoxicating. And that's where you start to develop an overestimation of your own skill because you're rapidly moving up in competence. The trouble is in that phase, you don't really understand the big picture well enough to understand what it is to be truly good at this versus just cobbling stuff together in that phase you're kind of doing cargo cult stuff you're just imitating and what you're doing is picking the right people to imitate and you don't have broader context and i think the biggest thing between advanced beginner and when you get into competence is the competence can react to unprecedented situations in rational ways with good approaches because they're no longer purely in the realm of just cobbling together existing solutions so to go all the way back, um, my thing here was that expert beginners were this like calcified stage of advanced beginner where you still lacked the context. Um, so I think the path out of expert beginnerism, one is, I guess, the humbling um, admission that maybe you, you could be better at this. But I'd say more importantly, a, a tangible way, like a very actionable way to get out of it is to start to kind of quantify or put evaluation criteria to the things you're doing or at least put some kind of research in it so to like make that a little less abstract if um and i'm going to go back to the example of these people um that i was interacting with if you're saying something like hey it's you know doing unit tests on a code base is not a good there's not a good return on investment you're writing all this extra code that doesn't do anything for you uh well prove it like go and do some research run an experiment um come up with a way whatever that looks like to show, you know, I'm right about this. So those people who are questioning you, you're not going back and forth with like citing your level of experience or resume. You're saying, no, here's like tangible, conclusive evidence 
Um, so I'd say the path out of expert beginnerism is to get good at justifying what you're doing with outside sources or with experiments that you're running and to get comfortable with doing that um, because that's what people at higher levels of the of the chart would do people that are professional or experts they've run experiments like that in the past or they have things that they can cite um, and call up at will that aren't just sort of cargo cult imitation what sorts of environments or business businesses cultures team size company size what what of, of all this sort of context, have you seen any any uh, common threads that lead to or promote expert beginnerism, or maybe that do the opposite that help help uh, promote humility? And, and so, in my consulting travels, I started to you know it, earlier in my career, like the first company I was at, I stayed there for like six years all in, which was by far the longest stop, and then I had shorter stops and. Then when I went on, on my own as a consultant, I got the um, opportunity to go in and look at all kinds of different places. And what I observed vis-a-vis -vis the expert beginner is that this persona exists in all kinds of shops. I think the single biggest enabling factor, um, especially once I got into management consulting and I was helping organizations assess personnel problems or build org charts, et cetera, um, the biggest correlation with expert beginnerism is hero culture as perceived by management. So management tends to be cripping, cripplingly afraid of expert beginners. They are perceived as like a Dr. House type figure often. They're irascible. They're mean to people. They're a morale problem. Um, but they're so productive. They're such heroes uh, that we don't want to risk annoying them in any way. And, um, yeah, I think that's the single biggest correlation with that persona because it feeds back into them. It gasses them up, you know, management and often it's self-reported. Like often these people are telling management how great they are mm -hmm. and there's not actually a lot of evidence to suggest it, but they're telling management how important they are. And then management will infer that from watching them act like Dr. House. They're like, oh man, like this must be somebody I really, you know, ought to listen to. So I think that's the single biggest determining factor and why I can t talk about seeing it in enterprises where teams often shuffle around and there's fluidity and you would think maybe this wouldn't develop as much. And then I've seen it at these really small like captive type shops where you've got like four engineers and one of them's been there for 20 years, but it happens everywhere. And the common thread there is that fear from leadership of angering this hero. So that leads to my next question. It, as somebody in a leadership or management role, what can I do to avoid these traps? And uh, I think you've already hinted at uh, a big part of that, but maybe you want to just uh, fin finish out that thought. The advice I used to give in this situation, I don't, depending on how like populist your leanings or whatever, um, you may love or you may hate me for, but um, what I would tell leadership in IT is that it is unlikely that, assume this person is as good as you think they are, they're still probably a net negative. Um, and they're also probably not all that important to your organization. So the advice that I used to settle on when people would behave this way is I would go to the leaders and say, what you should do is treat the morale problems and the play as well with others and all that as part of this person's core job performance. They're used to getting exceeds expectations on every performance review. Now you're going, you know, because I, I didn't get called into organizations when things were lovely. Um, so there were problems. And, and the advice I would give if, one of those problems were a person like this torpedoing morale, as I would say, 
um, treat this as incompetence. So if they're upsetting people, if they're causing uh, less experienced developers to leave, if there's turnover, if people are complaining to HR, take those things and throw it uh, right alongside anything they're doing technically as part of how you're evaluating them and label them incompetent until they fix this. And one of two things typically happens. It drives them nuts and they change how they behave or they leave the organization. And frankly, either one of those is a good outcome in my opinion. Suppose you uh, are working with somebody like this, but you, you're not in leadership. You have no authority to change things. How do you cope? Honestly, me personally, I used to leave. Like it would just get tiring and I could find other jobs. Um, in as much as I'd stick it out, the, the original experience I had um, where I was kind of at first, I guess you would say below them in the pecking order and then an equal it was a hard fought battle, but it was usually done by responding to silly proclamations with like overwhelming evidence. Like I wish I could remember the specifics, but um, one of these folks said something like sent out this like group announcement about having to do something every time the garbage collector fired off. And it was, it was nonsense. And it was like an active detriment to the code base and complexity, <clears throat> basically like recommending it. This is always a bad sign of things. If, if you feel like you need to write code that goes in and tells the garbage collector how to do its job, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. Um, so I remember in this instance, I wish I could remember the specifics, but doing research coming out, like showing somebody who had run trials on trying to do something like this and what happened and then even, I think, running an experiment with a memory profiler to show that, like, this guy had basically laid out a blueprint for a massive memory leak. I spent, like, a day doing that and putting together this email and then sending it out as, like, a counterpoint. And that's tiring. It's fraught. Um, you know, it does kind of lead to conflict. But the one thing I think this persona hates to do is is be like demonstrably proved wrong beyond all shadow of a doubt. So these types of interactions over the course of time um, led to them kind of leaving me alone more. And it makes me think of that silly bit of like advice, you know, when you go to the prison or prison, like punch the biggest guy in the face or whatever, but <laughs> so it's like a version of that, but man, I, boy, that is a tough route to go. So that's one route I, I would personally leave or just ask for transfers out. Like, if you're stuck in a shop like this, it may seem like this will always happen, but it's not like this everywhere. So I don't know. I hate to give advice that's like quit. I mean, you can stick it out, duke it out. But I, I think more often than not, absent that person leaving or going somewhere else, it's it's tough to stay. Well, we'll, we'll have a link to the, to the book in the show notes. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add about this topic uh, before uh, we close out? You know, it's been interesting to reflect back on it so many years after having written it and think that it still resonates with people. It still seems like, you know, with with other blog posts I wrote like five, six, ten years ago, I go back and read it and I'm like, oh, I was pretty silly. But like with this one, it seems to be fairly evergreen in the sense that it still resonates. And when I read it, I, I think like, yeah, this reflects experience that I would have over the next however many years of my career. So uh, I'm not saying that as you know, a self plug for being prescient or anything. It's more that, um, kind of just looking back at what I've written, this one seems to be enduring and, uh, you know, resonate with people. And I guess the, the negative side of that is it continues to be an issue in an industry that I think is 
often maybe a little too preoccupied with coming up with like quote objectively right answers and that can lead to a tendency to i guess equate answers with status you know earnable status like titles or points or levels or whatever um so i think the thing that i'd suggest is as a parting bit of wisdom such as it is um that you don't ever assume that your past experience makes you infallible like weird as that is to say but um you don't earn up to a certain badge or a certain level or a certain title and then your word becomes gospel that just never happens and if you think that it does that's the path to this sort of like interpersonal anti-pattern do you have any other recommended resources for people struggling with these sorts of problems I think in general, like in the abstract, I don't know of any specific ones, but if you can find communities where, you know, like mutual career support or something, a good place to go is with others that are in similar positions. Um, if you, like, if this is interesting to you, I've written over the years a lot about, I guess, um, career oriented topics and software. So my blog, deadtech.com has stuff like this, not super well curated. I would add, um, it's just me having written for something like 11 years now. Um, so there's a lot of articles organized loosely by time and, and that's about it. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, maybe I, I remember there was the career stack exchange where people used to post and wonder about topics like this. I don't know if that's still going. And how can people get a hold of you? Oh, these days there's two main places that I hang out. There is Dead Tech, which if you go there, it'll look like I haven't written in a long time. That's uh, because I haven't, but it's also because I just had a baby and I'm very busy. I don't intend to stop creating content there, but that site is just mine. It used to be my consulting site. I don't do consulting anymore, so now it's just my musings. And you can find links to like my YouTube channel and social media, though I'm not particularly active there either. And then the other thing I'm doing is hit subscribe, which is the business of which I'm currently the CEO. Um, and that's hitsubscribe.com. The main interest for anyone here is that we're always looking for people to write technical blog posts or create technical content for our customers who pay us to do that. Um, so if you think you'd be interested in, you know, creating content and getting your name out there a little, that is something we do. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day.